Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. As you're seated, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The fourth gospel. We have been tracking for the last several weeks life-changing decisions. We've looked at Peter's decision at those hours around the crucifixion of the trial of Jesus. Peter's decision to deny Christ. We've looked at Pilate's decision to make the, the, the political right decision and go with what his peers would say. Make the wrong decision. We've looked at those women in John who were around the cross and made the decision to be loyal to the end. And then we saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they, as they were secret disciples. And finally, after the crucifixion, they stepped out into the light and made the decision to finally do the right thing. This morning, we're going to look at Mary Magdalene in her decision to share the news that Jesus is alive. It's been said around Easter that the world offers promises full of emptiness, but God offers emptiness full of promise. You have the empty cross, the empty tomb, the empty grave clothes. We're going to look at that story this morning, a familiar passage that we read every Easter in the account that John shares in chapter 20. If you would follow as I read aloud. Verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Now Mary, going to anoint the body of Jesus with spices, heading to the tomb... Uh, the other gospels say as she went with other women, they were discussing how they might move the stone. Some have suggested that they really weren't even sure what they were going to do when they got there, but they were hoping to do something. Mary Magdalene shows up at the tomb, discovers that it is empty, and she runs to tell Simon Peter and the other disciple who we found out last week or week before last is John. He goes and tells them they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. Now look at verse 3. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. And the two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Now, by the way, the other apostle, the other disciple, John, is the one who wrote the book of John. I think he just wanted to add that in there. It's kind of like, nanny, 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 I beat Peter to the tomb. He outran him. Verse 5, stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. John gets to the tomb first, and he bends over and looks down. And sees in there there's no body. The stone's been rolled away, first of all, just like Mary had said. There's no body, just grave clothes. And while he's standing there trying to process what had happened, trying to take it all in, look at verse 6. Then following him, Simon Peter came also, and he entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. Peter, I can see him running full blast, not even thinking about what he's going to do when he gets there. But he shoves John out of the way and rushes right into the tomb. That's Peter, right? Impulsive. Just I want to get there. The wrapping that had been on his head, verse 7, was not lined with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. By the way, clear evidence that they had not taken his body. The other disciple, 
whom had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb, saw and believed. For they still did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That statement is made of the other disciples. Apparently John got it, but the other disciples, Peter and others, hadn't. Then the disciples went home again. Look at verse 11. By this time Mary apparently has gotten back to the tomb. She couldn't run as fast as those guys. And she stood outside facing the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet, where Jesus' body had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they put him. Isn't that great? She sees these two. By the way, angels most often when they appear in the Bible don't have halos and don't have wings. Most often when an angel appears, he appears as a messenger in the form of a man. So it's possible that she didn't get that they were even angels there. But she listens to them and they're asking, why are you crying? And she says, someone's taken his body basically and I don't know where they put him. They've taken him away. So in verse 15, where did I stop in 15 or 14? 14. Having said this, I'm glad you all are paying attention. At least one person in here I get. You know, the pastor ought to be the one paying attention, shouldn't he? Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, though she did not know it was Jesus. For whatever reason, Mary doesn't recognize him. Some have suggested that it's because her eyes are just full of tears. Have you ever cried that long and hard where your eyes are just puffy? You can't see. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was her grief. She's trying to figure out what's going on, and she still doesn't understand. But she doesn't recognize him. But then Jesus speaks in verse 15. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Isn't it interesting? They keep asking her, why are you crying? Don't you like that, ladies? When us guys ask you, why are you crying? Well, they had a reason. Sometimes you all don't have a reason, but they, they had a That did not come out the way I meant it to. Because rewind, all right? Sometimes we don't have a reason to ask. How's that? Oh, boy. Their reason was you shouldn't be crying because Jesus is alive. In other words, why are you so sad? Haven't you figured it out yet? So Jesus says, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you put him and I will take him away. Again, she still thinks someone has taken Jesus' body. She may be thinking possibly that since that tomb was borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea, that it was just temporary that he was only going to be placed there through the Sabbath, and after the Sabbath is over, that they would take his body. She was afraid, maybe, that someone would take his body and put it in the trash heap in the Valley of Gehenna with all the other criminals' bodies. We don't know what she's thinking, but she's figured out the body's been moved, and that's all she knows. But then in verse 16, I love it. Jesus said, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Jesus tells her, don't cling to me. Some translations say, don't touch me. And some have said that that she couldn't touch his glorified body or his body until it got glorified and ascended. I I believe the translation, don't cling to me, is the best. There are other translations that say, don't hold on to me. I think what happened was Mary is so overwhelmed. When he calls her name, she figures it out. This is Jesus and he's alive. She just embraces him. And she's hanging on to him. And he kind of says... 
there'll be a time for that, but not right now. Because I got something for you to do. So don't cling to me right now too much. He says, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and to your father, my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Let's look at four truths for us this morning from this passage of scripture. A very familiar story, a familiar account if you're, if you're used to coming to Easter Sunday services and listening to the story of the resurrection. But we're going to make four points of application for us today. Number one, God often shows up where we least expect him. God often shows up where we least expect him. Jesus appeared to Mary and she wasn't expecting to see him. You get it? She still was thinking, he's dead, he's buried, it's over. She's still thinking like the rest of the disciples, this is a dead end. We've spent these three years of our life, some less following him, and now he's gone, it's over, case closed. We sure don't expect to see him alive and living there. And he shows up and he surprises Mary. Sometimes I pray, God, just surprise us with your grace. Sometimes I pray about Sunday morning, God, would you just show up and surprise some of us? Some of us who showed up on Easter Sunday and we've got our nice new clothes and we got our, maybe we made plans with family and we're just going there because that's what we do and you're here and I pray, God, just surprise those folks. Let them see that, that you're here and that you're alive and that you want to do work in their life. God shows up when we least expect him. See, she's looking at an empty tomb. Next thing she knows, here's Jesus. God has a way of doing that. Sometimes we expect him in church. We expect him to show up and do something. God often meets us at other places. This morning, after I prayed with our men, early this morning, <laughs> I was heading back home to get my wife, and I heard a song on the radio that I haven't heard in 30 years, a Dallas Holmes song. One of the lines in is, as he was singing is, Jesus, I'm an open book. And I, I heard that song, and I just broke down, and I was crying on the way home because God met me in my car on the way home from church. Go figure. Sometimes he just shows up and you don't expect it and you just celebrate that. But I think what happened with Mary is she's having trouble processing what has happened. She heard all these things. She was taught these things. But now here she is. Here's an empty tomb. And she can't figure it out. And Jesus shows up. Every year our church has a pumpkin patch Halloween alternative and about 2,500 people show up on these facilities and, and the parking lot's covered with folks and I was out doing my thing one, one uh, October 31st night and I walked up and looked and there stood my, my daughter and my son and they both live about seven hours away and they weren't supposed to be here. And I turned around and there they were and they're just standing there smiling. And I'm like, it's like I saw, I don't know what I was looking at. I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is Rockport, you live in Dallas, you're not supposed to be here. And it took me a little, bit, a little while to process what was going on. I'm sure I had this dumbfounded look on my face, like, uh, who are you? You ever do that? I'm thinking, okay, I know your name. That's Carissa. That's Carrie. You, you're not supposed to be here. You surprised me. And then I figured it out, and it was great. We had a great time. That's my prayer for you, that God would just surprise you. Sure, we expect him here at church, but I just pray that whether he surprises you this morning or in the car on the way home or sometime when you're alone with him or in an encounter that he would just show up and show himself to you. God shows up where we least expect him. Number two, 
There's a time to worship Jesus and a time to share Jesus. There's a time to worship Jesus and a time to share Jesus. You notice I have worship in quotes there? There's a reason for that. When I put it in quotes, I'm referring to this, the time where we're here together corporately and we're singing and we're praying and we're reading the word of God. That, that, that corporate worship or maybe that worship time where you're alone with him and you're, you're intimately involved in prayer and seeking him. That, that, that's, that's the worship I'm talking about. Because really and truly, worship is more than just that time. Worship is our whole lifestyle. Worship is when you leave these four walls. Worship is when you get out of here and you, are, you, you stand in this place and you say, Lord, I, I give you my life, I surrender all, I will trust you. And then you leave this place and you live it out. That's really worship. Paul said in Romans chapter 12 that, that we're to offer to him our spiritual act of worship. That's a lifestyle of obedience. But in the, in the context of what I'm talking about here with worship, I'm talking about when we're together worshiping, okay? So there's a time to do this and a time to share him. Look with me at verse, six, or verse 17. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, by the way, that ascension, when he went to be with the Father, who did he send? He sent his Holy Spirit to empower the church and to live within the church. So Jesus is saying, I've still got some things to accomplish so I can fill you and empower you. But he says, go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father. Go tell them. Jesus is saying, don't hold on to me. Don't cling to me. Don't worship me so much that you forget your calling is to go out and tell other people. It's more than just what we do in here. It's more than just a weekly holy huddle where you come together and say, yay God. And some of you say amen. You never say amen any other time but when you're in church you do that, right? Amen. What if you do that at work? What would they say? It's crazy. But it's your time to, to celebrate. How would you like it if you went to a football game and you watch the, the team get out on the field and, and your team comes together and they form that huddle and they do whatever you do in a huddle. They talk about the play. Here's how we're going to do it. You run this pattern. You run that pattern. You block that guy. And don't let that guy get to me again. You know, all that stuff. They do all that stuff. And then, and then they put one hand over it and they go, yay, go, frogs. Or <laughs> gophers or pirates, whatever. They say, yay, go. And everybody's just high-fiving each other and low-fiving inside and patting each other on the rear and all that stuff you know that goes on in the huddle there it's man aren't we great hitting each other on the back boy that's a great play you just ran a minute remember that play you just did well that was good we ought to do that again sometime and everybody's doing that and you're sitting up in the stands watching your team and there's your team in this huddle doing their thing and there's the other team lined up on the line of scrimmage ready to play ball and you're saying i wish my group would break huddle and go play the other team Do you think maybe God thinks the same thing of us when he watches us come together and say, yay, God, yay, church, yay, choir, way to go, preacher. It's usually, boy, preacher, you really let them have it this week. That was good, whoever they are. It's more than just us coming together saying, yay, God, and God would say to us, would you folks please break huddle? And go play the game. If we did, there would not be room in this building 
for the people. They would be standing out there waiting to get in. If we lived it and we broke huddle and we got after it and we realized there is a time for worship, but there's a time to do what Jesus said. Go tell my brothers that I'm alive. I think about, and this is not a political statement, okay? But it's a good illustration, so i got to use it. As I was thinking about this passage, I thought about the United Nations and how, boy, that's an incredible body of dignitaries and brilliant people from all over the world with all this just knowledge from every walk of life and all these backgrounds and languages and, and they come together and they talk about how they're going to change the world. And they vote on it and they write declarations and have councils and meetings and speeches and they just talk about how they're going to change the world. Have they changed the world? Sounds like the church, doesn't it? Folks, there is a time to worship, but there's a time to share. Number three, Jesus offers forgiveness and restoration. Jesus offers forgiveness and restoration. Back to verse 17. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, to the Father. Go, but go, and you go to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to the Father. There's the go tell, but he says this, go to my brothers and tell. Let me kind of paraphrase that a little bit. Go to all those rascals that wouldn't stand up for me. Go to all those people who denied me. Go to all those people who ran when it looked like I was going to the cross. Go to everybody who didn't want anything to do with me in the end. And you tell them they're my brothers. Tell them I love them. See what he's saying? Tell them they're forgiven. Go tell Peter. By the way, I love it. When we looked at Peter's denial of Christ, we also tracked on into the New Testament at how Christ accepted Peter. And you find the description of when Jesus appeared after the resurrection. It says he appeared to Peter and his disciples. It's not like he wants to say Peter's the top dog, but he's saying, I want Peter to know that he's forgiven for his denial. See, Jesus offers forgiveness and restoration because he says, go and tell them they're my brothers and I'm alive. Do you need that this morning? Do you need to know that you're forgiven? That you, that you can be restored to fellowship? The choir sang a minute ago about it took a lamb, a spotless lamb. See, the Bible shows us all through the Old Testament how God instituted the sacrificial system to be a picture of the reality. Now, the picture was all of these lambs that were brought during the Passover, which, by the way, is what happened during the last week of the life of Christ. All those people were coming to Jerusalem with their Passover lambs to sacrifice the spotless lamb, and that blood was a temporary covering. It didn't save them. It didn't forgive them. It pointed to the real sacrifice that was to come. And that lamb is the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and he died on a cross so that there could be forgiveness and restoration. See, the cross is not a reminder that we've sinned. The cross is a reminder that we're forgiven. Jesus said, here I am. I lay my life down. No one takes it. He gave his life for you so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be restored. See, God created us in his image, and, and there was this bond 
of fellowship with him in the garden, but then man sinned and, and fell away from God, and we've lived a life of rebellion and disobedience. But when Christ came and gave his life for us, that relationship is made right again. We've been restored. Isn't that good news? A few years back, when George Bush, Bush was president, Tim Gaglin was his manager of the, um, it's a long title of the public liaison office, and he was to write articles about, about the White House, and after he'd been doing that for about seven years, word got out that about 27 of his 39 articles had all been plagiarized, and he lost his job, obviously. He lost uh, status in the community. His family was struggling. He was summoned to the White House. And he thought, here I go, I'm getting called on the carpet, I know. And, and he was ready, he was broken by then. He went into the president, into the Oval Office, and he said, Mr. President, I'm sorry. But he couldn't even get the word sorry out. And president Bush said, Tim, I forgive you. And he was shocked by that. He thought he was going to get chewed out. And he said, you don't understand, Mr. President. He started to try to explain it again. And, and this is what Bush said. He said, Tim, you're forgiven. I've known grace and mercy all my life. I want you to know you're forgiven. Isn't it great to be forgiven? That you can extend forgiveness? I love that. See, God says to us, you are forgiven. Maybe that's what you need today. Maybe you can't forgive yourself for the life you've lived, but Jesus Christ knew everything you've done. He knew every thought you've thought, everything that you could possibly imagine. Jesus knows, because he's God. But he still says, I gave my life for you. And I want to forgive you. Jesus offers that. It's, it's extended to you. It's extended to you. You ever go to someone and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And they wouldn't forgive you? They wouldn't extend that forgiveness? See, Jesus is offering to you complete forgiveness. And what he's saying is, will you accept it? It's been extended. The Bible says that the that salvation is like a gift, that, that it's extended to us and we have to receive it by faith. Have you ever done that? To recognize that you are a sinner and you can't save yourself, that Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay the price for your sins as the perfect sacrifice? And would you be willing to say, Lord Jesus, I'll let you come into my life, and take up residence in me and be in charge, be in control? That's what it means to be forgiven. It's extended. Number four, when Jesus calls your name, listen and respond. When Jesus calls your name, listen and respond. Look with me at verse 16. Jesus said, Mary. The Bible says she turned around and recognized him when she heard his voice call her name. When I was a teenager, I finally gave in to that call. I heard my name. When I was a kid, I heard Kevin, 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 Kevin. And a whole bunch of times I said, not now, Jesus. He just kept calling my name, Kevin, Kevin. And as I began to listen, and of course it wasn't an audible voice, that'd be great, man, <laughs> But I heard it in my heart. As I heard my name, I began to hear, I gave my life for you, Kevin. Will you accept that gift? 
Will you invite me into your life? And finally, as a teenager, I surrendered my life to him. I responded. Mary does when she hears her name. She believes. And then he gives her the commission and says, go and tell my brothers. Verse 18 says, she announced it to the disciples. I've seen the Lord. She obeyed. Have you heard him call your name? There's a great picture of that in the book of the Revelation where Jesus is talking to the church and and he says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come into them and have fellowship with them and, and, and they will with me. There's this picture of Jesus standing at the door of our heart and knocking. Will we open the door and invite him in? Now that happens in everybody's life a little bit differently, but it's the same invitation. Jesus is saying, I want in. Will you let me in? Have you heard your name? Listen, the world's out there calling your name. I know that. They're offering all of those empty promises. But Jesus is calling your name. And he offers an empty tomb to back up his promises. Bill Donahue tells a story when he was a part-time youth pastor he went to visit a couple of his students at a, who lived on a farm, and, and, and that farm had sheep. So the dad, the farmer, thought he would just show the youth minister a little thing or two, teach him a lesson. So this student pastor goes out there, and he says, hey, hey, Billy said, would you like to call the sheep today? And he says, well, I guess. Come on out here. And so there's a pasture, about 25 sheep out there. He says, how do you do that? He says, you just say, hey, sheep, come on. So... Bill says, hey, sheep, come on. He says, no, no, you got to do it louder than that. So he says, hey, sheep, come on. He said, no, maybe they didn't hear you. And the sheep are just ignoring him completely. So he, he says it several more times. Hey, sheep, come on. Nothing happens. So finally, Bill's frustrated, and the farmer says, well, this is how you do it. Hey, sheep, come on. It sounded the same to him. But every one of those sheep turned and looked at their master and followed him. He says, don't they ever teach you anything at seminary? Haven't you heard that verse, my sheep know my voice and follow me? So. Do you want to be one of his sheep? I encourage you, listen to his voice and follow him. Let's pray.